Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel. Elias, how was the world treating you today? Like it kicked my dog. Cheers. That's a norm from Cheers. I think you tried to do that one in a different episode of the show and didn't quite get it right. Or I didn't ask the question correctly. So uh, it definitely wasn't me that did it wrong. You did it wrong. Yeah, I'm not. Oh, man, it's a rough crowd today. I'm not. <laughs> I'll be honest. I didn't watch all that much Cheers growing up. I, I don't know. I never got into that, but that wasn't wasn't my show of the liking. I was reading an article the other day. It's always funny when I read one that's pretty subjective. CNN recently asked readers what was the best financial advice they ever received. And the responses actually are kind of what I expected, but not all of them. Um, one of the most common answers, Elias, was don't pocket your raise. Invest half of it in your 401k. And this actually reminds me of a book. Um, it's called Save More Tomorrow. I know Jonas in our office kind of uh, uses this in his practice a lot, but it's a whole idea that you know when you get a raise, most people just like to take the raise, increase their lifestyle, get more lifestyle creep coming in, and they don't actually increase their savings rate. And, and it's unfortunate because if they don't do that, what eventually is going to happen is their savings rate is going to stay stagnant but their lifestyle is going to increase, which it's hard for people in retirement to scale back that lifestyle. It is. And I'm, uh, to me, saving half the raise, this is a little aggressive for me. I'm more like to, uh, like, let's say you get a 5% five raise, and I'm a big fan of the 401k plans, especially that you can increase like a percent annually. Um, but, you know, because we talk about lifestyle a lot. So I'm kind of someone who I like to know that I'm on track for my long-term savings goals. But um, I know I've never committed half of a raise into savings because, I mean, I do contribute more every year. But I also, I like to enjoy my life now, too. So I guess to me, this kind of depends. I think if you're young enough, you can start with, I think a good way to do it, if you're young enough, 20s or 30s, like if you start with you're saving 10% of your income and then you do the automatic bumps, whether it's 1% or 2% a year until you're like doing 20% into your company retirement plan, I think that's also a good strategy for this. But um, I'm just, you know, if I don't think people should be socking away, you know, such an amount of money that you can't enjoy your life at all for the, you know, for the meantime. Well, like the, they say, you only live once, right? The easiest way to quantify what someone needs to save is to evaluate where you want to be in the future, set goals on priorities, which really comes back to setting up a financial plan. As we talk about on this show a lot, most things can be answered with some level of confidence through doing a financial plan. So if you don't have a plan, go to btwellshow.com, click get a plan. We'll, we'll start helping you with that. But one of the things that's actually really helped people save is technology. And technology has really enhanced the ability for people to automatically escalate their savings. And you're able to do this in your 401k that you mentioned earlier. You can go ahead, set it up, say, I would like to increase my 401k contribution 1% each year or 529 plans. I know my, my kids, I have an auto automatic escalation. So each year, 
more money gets deposited into that 529 plan on a monthly basis. So um, it's good advice. This is great advice, actually. But what would be even better is to just make the increases automatic because the other issue with this is let's say you don't get a raise. You may still be able to increase your savings rate even though you didn't get a raise. So just make this automatic. And, and if it's not automatic, most people will never take the raise and increase their contribution. They just won't do it. And just because you're maxing out your company retirement plan doesn't mean that you shouldn't still save more money if your income goes up because there are contribution limits on those plans, which at some point you'll max out. And I think most people can agree just psychologically, if you do those automatic ones where it just happens and you're used to it, you're never going to miss it, right? That's the thing where if you take that raise and maybe you get it for a few months before you think, oh, I should increase my um, increase my contribution. Well, at that point, it might be a little more painful where if you just do it right away, that's just your new normal from the beginning. So, you know, like you're saying, if it's automatic, you're just, you're never going to miss that, that money. And it's still your money. It's not like it's going anywhere. You're just saving it for, you know, for later use. Yeah. Doing it right away. You're just stopping the lifestyle creep immediately from happening. Um, number two, if you can't pay in full for what you're buying, don't charge it. I think this is actually a very good statement for some things. Okay. Um, if you're running a business or if you're buying a house, most people aren't going to be able to pay in full for their house. So that wouldn't be a reason to not buy it. So in most cases, regular daily purchases or extras in life, this is a good saying credit cards is really what I feel like this is referring to. And those should be used more as a financial convenience versus the crutch of, hey, I can't afford this, I'll pay for it later. I know I, I just watched a YouTube video with Graham Stephan and he mentions getting the JP Morgan reserve card. And I, I don't remember the details, but it comes in a special box. It's a giant card, but it's because he's charging. It takes $10 million of liquid net worth to get it, but he's utilizing his card for all of his ad spend and all of his business spend. So he's not using that credit card as a crutch. He's using it as a way to facilitate his business transactions. So well, I believe this is good advice for everyday purchases. You know, you may not be able to pay in full for a house, pay in full for a car, pay in full for college. So I think it's a little skewed and maybe a little misrepresented um, in this actual article. I agree with that and what you're saying there and this, uh, this next one was it's never too late to invest. So it's probably, uh, you probably should get started as early as possible, but I agree. I mean, at some point, maybe if you've gone too long before starting, you do kind of have to take the attitude. Well, it's never too late to get started and I am going to get started. It might mean you have to contribute more and there might be some, some other challenges in your way. But uh, I guess in general, I kind of agree that it, it's never too late to get started. I remember listening to a Dave Ramsey video and the guy had called in and Dave was asking him, hey, asking all his financials. The guy wanted to buy a really expensive car and he had he'd saved up like one point seven million. And Dave asked how he did it. He said, well, five years ago, I started listening to you and I started putting a thousand dollars a month away. This guy was in his 50s. He was able to accumulate $1.7 in a pretty small period of time. Now, obviously, he must have hit on some good investments. 
Um, and he still had time to accumulate a pretty good sum of money. One thing I hear from people a lot, and you probably hear this too, Elias. Well, I don't have enough money to work with a broker. I don't have enough money to have a financial advisor. It's too expensive to have a financial advisor. I mean, I've had friends who are like, well, you wouldn't work with me. I don't have enough money. And they just don't know that's not the truth. The truth is we want to help give people really sound financial advice and put them on a track to hit their financial goals. And our industry is getting to the point where they're making it so streamlined and so easy that advisors should be able to work with basically everybody. I mean, the, the tools that we've been provided make it very, very, very simple to work, even with small accounts. We all have large accounts, but I feel like these small accounts get neglected. And that's part of the reason people put off saving because they have this fear that people are going to tell them no. Yeah. And so I'll say there's I mean, if you think you can't work with an advisor because you don't have enough money, that's kind of a. Uh, it's almost like an oxymoron, right? Like aren't find people in the business of helping people with their money. If you're just getting started, it's almost more important at that point. Go to the financial advisor. Help. And if they tell you no, say, well, what do I need to do to get to the point where I can get help from you? Like well, I yeah, know there's other, tell you. there's yeah. other shows out there doing what we do. They have a $300,000 account minimum. Well, you don't help people that don't have 300,000, but instantly they get to 300,000 and they're good enough to work with you, it's really not. They've just set this bar because they don't believe that anybody less than that's profitable. And that, that's how they want to run their practice, and that's fine. But I just don't operate that way. Let's help people get to the point where they start with a few thousand dollars and get to financial freedom and have a million and million and a half and two million dollars. That's actually fun and exciting for me to get people on the right track to success, give them the right tools versus saying, hey, Go online, learn it yourself, figure it out, and then we have three hundred thousand. Come talk to me. Come, I mean, come, think ba about that. come back when you're profitable, yeah, please. So it, that's what it is. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. it irritates me. So at two hundred sixty thousand, forty thousand. Oh, now I need help. No, it's just the time in which they'll engage you because you're not profitable until them. And too many people in our industry look at their clientele as a pure profit center. We look at this as helping people. The more people we help, the more people that are going to come in here. And yes, we all have to get paid a fair wage. But at the end of the day, the tools and technology are there to help anybody in this business. Yeah. And the other thing you mentioned, I want to touch on is maybe people think it's too expensive. And that's something we hear too, whether talking to prospects or just people we know. Um, in general, I don't really feel like financial planners are overcharging people. And one of the questions I always pose is, if they take you from point A to point B and you get where you want to go, why is the fee even relevant? You know, I don't feel because I don't feel like people are say, well, I don't want to take my car to a mechanic because he charges me by the hour. Most people I know, they want to go to the mechanic in town who charges a little bit more because of of the guy's reputation. So I guess what I'm getting at is I don't think the financial advice world. I don't think planners are overcharging people. And that's like, it's just a question we get a lot. Well, what do you charge? Um, and then especially, oh, I'm a do it yourself or I just don't see why I would pay someone to help me with this. Well, and that, and that could be right, but there's plenty of studies. I can show you all this data that suggests you're better off working with a financial advisor. Most financial advisors underprice their services. I agree Com with that. Comparative to what 
the vanguards of the world believe we are worth. And the article that I just cited from the Canadian Institute for Finance, uh, it was an article that um, oh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Daniel Crosby had posted. I mean, if you look at the empirical evidence of working with an advisor and where it takes you financially, there's no reason you wouldn't work with one. And, and I like your me mechanic um, comparison. No one's price shopping their mechanic. But you, you know price what? shop your financial advisor. They're, they're definitely not going to the cheapest. Yeah, but think about it. <laughs> well, we're not going to price shop our mechanic, but we're going to price shop the financial advisor. What it's means silly. more? Your car that you're not married to and doesn't determine what happens to you 20 years from today, it'll be in the junkyard anyway. Or the financial person providing advice. Let's go with the cheapest. Let's do it ourselves. I mean, I don't know anybody who does their own work on their cars. If you don't uh, work in your own car, yeah, why are you working on your own very, finances? Yeah. Anymore, very few people even change their own oil. Trust me. Finances and investing is way more complicated than working on a car. People just think it's easier because the information is more out there, right? It's hard to go find a manual how to change an oil on a diesel truck. Trust me, I tried to do it. I did it for like 30 seconds. I quit. During COVID, I had an oil change. My wife goes, hey, you probably shouldn't go. It's pretty bad. They just were kind of like shutting, starting to shut everything down and my, my truck needed an oil change. So I'm like, no, nah, I got this. I can do this. So I order the, you can do it. I order the little thing you lay on your back so you can roll under the car and I get the big reservoir to collect the oil. I get the jug of oil, the special tool to like take off the oil filter thingamajigger, <laughs> oil the fil order the filter. And it sits in my garage for like three months because you know, I'm not really driving anywhere during COVID. Finally, I went and got my oil changed. I still have all that stuff today. Could I figure it out? Yes, but I didn't have the time, desire, or knowledge to do it. And that's exactly basically what you're saying. Is Did you take the oil into the shop to at least use it up? They can use it in your truck, right? I've got, I have, you the, still have? it's like a hundred dollar thing. It's the best oil you can buy for a diesel yeah. truck. You know how I do it. Yeah. And um, it's all still there. So it's all comes down to time, desire, and knowledge as to whether you're going to do this yourself. But get started investing early. We talk about the compounding effect of wealth that happens over a long period of time. It doesn't happen quickly, but just because you didn't start, you should start at some point. You know, if you're 55, your time horizon still like 30, 35 years, you're going to, you're going to need money well past your retirement date. So why not start saving now? And Jeff in our office has always had a great line. I've never in 20 some years of doing this met a person that told me they wish they would have saved less. Never heard that come out of somebody's mouth. I, I'd be shocked if someone said that. I've had clients tell me they don't think they need to save that much. But I think it's more just an excuse because they don't want to go through the pain of saving what they need to. Right. And But that's young. That That's probably younger clients, right? People that say, well, I don't want to save. I've only had one tell me too that. much. Only one. But anyone who's there. Yeah, there, I don't think anyone in that situation looks and goes, man, I, I wish I had a, a million dollars less than I have today. That probably doesn't happen. All right. Next on the list, budget for all your needs, including fun. Yeah, I have a, I have a good story about this one. So I was working with, uh, working with a younger guy, and he's just getting started out, wants to open a Roth IRA. And um, so he's talking to me about his budget. Now he's 22, 23 years old, young kid. And he goes, you know, 
if I could just stop going out on the weekend, it'd be easier to save money and invest money. I said, I think you're thinking about this wrong. I said, you need to, and I go, so tell me about your budget. And he's like talking about it, but nowhere in his budget was his lifestyle or the fun that he wants to have. And his main hobbies, he likes to go out like every other young person on the weekends. And he's a dirt bike rider. So if you have a dirt bike, there's maintenance, there's cost to buy the machine. And I said, here's the reality. You're not going to stop doing the things that you enjoy, but you're also at this point, you're not putting them in your budget. So you need to budget your needs, your groceries, your rent and all that stuff. But you also need to include your fun because if you're starting out every Monday saying, oh man, I spent too much money. Well, now you're just, you're starting with a negative relationship with your money where if you say I have $75 that I can go out and spend and I'm still saving, I'm still saving an appropriate amount. Well, then you're, you're on a positive track now where things are happening the way you want instead of thinking, oh man, I need to cut this out and cut that out. And if I just did that, it would work. Budget all that stuff in there. Budget the lifestyle you want and you'll start to just have a more positive mindset. So then it, I think it was like a month went by and I got a phone call from him and he's like, hey, I just, I really want to thank you for telling me that because I just, I started budgeting in my hobbies and now I'm not so mad about my money all the time. Let me tell That's you how- a small change. Let me tell you how a budget should really work. And here's the problem with budgets. Somebody that's listening, go Google budget worksheet. And the first thing on the budget worksheet is going to say, what's your income? The next thing it's going to say, how much is your rent or your mortgage payment? How much is your car payment? How much is your student loan payment? That's the biggest problem with budgets. They make you budget out all these things first, right? Your rent, student loan, all the other people you got to pay. And guess who's at the bottom of the worksheet? You. you. Yep. Retirement. What I want someone to do is if you're going to do a budget, we believe in a lifestyle budget, right? I don't believe that you say, I have to spend X on this. I have to spend 25% on housing. You build this budget how you want. The first thing you put at that budget is what you're going to save, 10 to 15% of your income right away. And then you budget in what I'm going to spend for my mortgage payment, the things that are important to me in life, and budget from there. But if you budget the other way and say, well, you know, I'm going to list everything I own and pay myself last, you will never get the financial security. So you're always going to find something that's more important than yourself. If you people think about it this way, David Bach wrote a book, The Latte Factor. If you just went to work every day and the first hour of every day you paid yourself with that money, you'd be financially successful. Things will work out. But what we do in America and probably in other countries, I can't speak for sure. We go to work, we work all day for somebody else. And then we might get a little bit of sliver at the end of the day. So if you're going to do a budget, please don't use a budget worksheet because I don't believe they work. Just list your income, what you're going to save, and then budget from there. Yeah, that's and that, that's a good lead into this next one. Retirement is easy to solve if you start saving in your 20s. So we talk about all the time, the younger you are, the easier it is. And so if you're starting out with your first job in your 20s and you commit to 10% of your income and you're going to pay yourself first, well, all that money that you save when you're young, you just have so much more time in the market where your money can compound and work for you that 
you know this to be true. We both know it. People that save more money in their 20s, they're going to end up having an easier time. Someone's career, when you're 20s, you're probably making the least amount of money you're ever going to make. So if you're committed to that that 10% goal, well, every year as you're getting raises, that contribution rate is going up too. So I think this is, I think this is great, great advice here. I think um, it'd be nice to see more people when they get their first job, their first goal. Okay, I got my first job. I need to start saving. Um, and if more people did that, uh, you you wouldn't be 50 years old and really wondering, I wonder if I have enough and all this type of stuff. You would already know that you're on a pretty good track. Yeah, Elias, that's actually really good insight. If you start in your 20s, it's actually really hard to mess this up for retirement. And, and what I did is I plugged in when we were talking here, just went to Morningstar and said, what if we bought the S&P 500 index starting in 1976? So if you're a 20 year old, basically 45 years. Yep. Okay. You put a thousand bucks in $300 a month. So if you're earning 30,000 a year, which would you know, be starting pay for about anybody and probably on the low side, it's about 10% of what you're earning. Just like what we talk about, people get started saving 10%. So I you're put doing it, contributions of three thousand a year. Is that yeah, what you just said? I did contributions of three hundred a month, and I escalate them twenty five dollars per month increase each year. So we put an automatic escalator in there to increase your contributions. So a person who starts at age twenty for forty five years and had done this through the S and P five hundred index, obviously what's happened in the past probably won't happen in the future, but just for fun. That person over their lifetime would have contributed four hundred and fifty-eight thousand. It'd be worth seven point five million. And who would not be happy with that? Most people earning thirty thousand dollars a year. If they didn't get bogged down with a lifestyle creep, right? Have to buy the new car right when they graduate. So we got our first job. Have to get a brand new car. Get a nice car. It doesn't have to be new. But they say, hey, I'm going to find a way to put away ten percent of what I earn and increase it each year by what, $350 a year? It's minimal. Seven and a half million bucks. Who wouldn't do that? I don't think a lot of people really see it that way, though. I think a lot of people think if I'm ever going to have a million or two million or three million dollars, I think a lot of people really think it takes a lot more to get there than what it really does or what it has in the past anyway. What I would tell people, it does take a lot more if you wait. And yeah, that's true. I and people, young people in their twenties, though, I don't think they realize. I mean, even if they just don't realize how easy it can really be if you get started. Nobody's educated them on that. Even when they go to their employer and they enroll in the four hundred one k, they say, "Oh yeah, well you should do this." Yeah. Right. No, You're getting a benefit, but no one says, "Hey, look, if you do X, your likely result is somewhere in this range." And okay, what if it's half as much? Who cares? half of seven and a half million dollars. I, mean, I think you're still sitting pretty good. It's just not that hard, but yeah. people just will not execute that. So retirement is easy to solve if you start saving early in life. Now, if you wait, it doesn't mean it's over. What it means is twofold. One, you need to get a financial plan and figure out what it's going to take to get where you want to go. And two, you better start saving and you're going to have to save a pretty decent amount if you've waited. Or yeah. you're just going to have to earn a lot more money to make up for lost time. So you think about this next one here. Never spend money behind your spouse's back. This is something you don't do. 
Well, I mean, not big amounts of money. <laughs> I, 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 I enjoy buying fishing equipment. I don't ask for permission to buy that stuff. Um, this is actually really good advice, especially if you operate on a very, very tight budget. Um, and especially if you're making bigger purchases, like in our family, we don't just go buy a new car and not tell the other person, right. Or buy something really expensive, but it, you know, we don't ask for permission to go to the store and buy shoes or whatever. I don't really consider that buying things behind your spouse's back, but you kind of need to come to a agreement in your household. What's the number that we have to like talk about it? Right. Cause I think there's a number we have to talk about it. You know, some people it's a hundred bucks. Some people it's a few thousand. Just what's the, I need to talk about it with you number unless it becomes a problem. I know personally the advent of online shopping was not good for me. I love Why to fish. Well, I love to fish mm -hmm. and I get bored at night and I go to tackle warehouse and I start looking at fishing lures and it's free shipping for 50 bucks. Oh yeah, that one looks good. I'd like to try that one. I did it last night. Pretty soon, you know, it's $82. Then the next day you get bored. You're like, Hmm, that looks good. And you have 30 bucks in your basket. We got to spend another 20 to get the free shipping. <laughs> How much is the shipping if you don't hit the free? It's like nine bucks. So it's just not worth it. Yeah. If you're spending 50, right. you got to spend 50. You're not going to spend 40. Right. But the point is it adds up. So this is where, you know, it could be seen as spending money behind your spouse's back. But in general, you should have open lines communication with your spouse, especially if you have a spouse who's not really involved in the finances. I think that's where it really becomes a problem is a Think of the dynamic of a lot of households, at least that I see. You got one person who's really kind of managing everything and has a pulse on what's going on. And the other person's, for lack of better terms, along for the ride. And that's okay. But that person who's along from the ride potentially could get taken advantage of financially by the person who's controlling all the money. Yeah. The, well, and, and that's true. That could happen. I I feel like personally at my house, I'm almost... I'm kind of in the dark when it comes to our spending. So my wife, she's the like she's the the bank account hawk. She logs in every day. I get gas at the gas station. I might buy a slice of pizza and hey, what's this two dollars and forty cents you spent at the gas station? I was hungry. I wanted a slice of pizza. Um, but I know from our investing and like from that part of our financial life. She, I, I make a habit to talk to her about it. So she knows what we have going on. I mean, is she going to remember any of that? No, she has no interest. She just trusts me that I'm doing a good job for us. And, but that's where you could run into those situations. Um, it'd be easy, you know, it could be easy for someone in that position to take advantage of their spouse or do something that their spouse would disagree with. And whether it's money or really anything for that matter, if you're, if you're in a marriage, you should be doing things that your spouse can agree with and appreciate with, right? Just in general. Well, and it, it all comes back to some level of open communication. If one person in the house kind of manages the checkbook and one doesn't, they still need to communicate about what's there. And, you know, yeah. like we, we just, we have the talk like, well, what's the number when I just need to consult with you if I'm going to buy it? It's not like looking for permission. It's just like, well, you know, you cool if I do this. Does it make sense? And I think where I've seen issues with individuals in the past is someone has a credit card and the other spouse doesn't know about it. 
And the next thing you know, they've got five or $6,000 on this credit card, or they went on a trip, told their spouse about this great trip they're going to take, but they didn't pay for it. They put it on the credit card. And the next thing you know, the spouse is like, well, what's this? And really a good term for what this is, is called financial infidelity. It's when you're cheating on your spouse with the money, right? Financial it might not be infidelity. Financial infidelity. All right. All right. You're, you're not cheating on them with a so-called person, but with the money. And some people really have a problem with spending and it's hard for them to get a grip on it and not do it. So I think this is actually really good advice that you should consult with your wife, but I don't know if I would consult about the $2 and 42 cent slice of pizza. <laughs> no, but you know what they say, happy wife, happy, happy life. life. So I'm just trying to make everything as smooth as possible. So that's, I mean, our final one here, family is always more important than money. i I mean, I know I agree. I agree with that 100%. I think money makes the world go round. We all need it. If you want a certain lifestyle, you have to have money to have it. But, um, you know, I don't think anyone's, I don't think anyone's financial status should affect their relationship with their, with their family members. Yeah, I agree with this 100%. I think where this really comes to light is when family members need to borrow or want to borrow money. And the advice that I would give people is don't lend money to family members. Give it to them as a gift if they need help. And if you get paid back, that's just a bonus because you won't be disappointed. If we have a realistic expectation, the last thing you want to do is, you know, lend your family member 5,000 bucks and they can't pay you back and you expect to get paid back. And it's going to cause, it's going to cause negative, negative tension. If yeah, you give them the money it. and say, I want to gift you the money. And if you feel that you're able to pay it back, great. If not, it's a gift. That's the way to handle that. And if you can't afford to give them the money, you shouldn't lend it to them. That's just a matter of fact, like don't put your family in a tough spot because of that. And I'm going to use the analogy. It's all about expectations of what's going to happen. So December of last year, Lawrence came out with their new live site fish finder. People have been talking about this for like eight months. I've been waiting a year for it. I'm all excited. I'm pre-order. I'm like the fifth person to pre-order. I swear. Like hits my email. I paid for it within like two minutes. I was ready to go. So as people are getting their, their units, I'm reading all these things in the discussion board. Oh, transducer was my first transducer was bad. Going to have to send it back to the company and, I get mine like end of January and it's Iowa. So there's ice. So I don't get to use it. So the first time I get this thing on the water, it's like March. When I went out, my expectation was that it is not going to work because I've read so much negative stuff about it. Guess what happened? D broken. Doesn't work. Didn't work. And I was out there with, I saw Armin out there that day. He's like, oh man, I bet you're so mad. I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I knew this was going to happen. I knew this was yeah. that's exactly what I told him. I said, my expectation that it wasn't going to work. And I already expected to send it back. So if you go into money with a family and your expectation is it's not going to get paid back, you can't get disappointed. You can't get upset. So I think that's really how to, what this really means is family is more important than money. We help our family do it as a gift versus holding over their head saying, hey, you still owe me that money because it's just not going to be a good situation if you don't get paid back. And it always makes me sad to an extent when I'm talking to someone and there's this weird situation in their family where, you know, one of the brothers lent money to another brother and then they don't talk for two or three years over 
to me, I'm always thinking, gosh, just over some money that you lent someone, it really caused that negative tension between you guys. And I have a pretty close family and I'm very close with my brother. So I just, to me, I can't even wrap my mind around not talking to him or having a relationship with him for a couple of years because I loaned him money. Now, he probably knows better. He probably would never ask me for money because most likely I'm just going to say no. Unless if he really was in a bind and he needed it, I would help him out. But first, I'd want to know, how'd you get in this situation? Well, otherwise, you're <laughs> just an enabler. Right. So the, the joke is, Elias, the easiest way to break up a family reunion, throw a $100 bill on the table. <laughs> it's the fastest way to mess up a reunion. That's mine. <laughs> so, Elias, one thing, we've been doing financial weathermen of the week. Not every week, but rare occasionally. And usually it's about people predicting or telling us why the world's going to come to an end. I read an article in the wealthadvisor.com. Billionaire Leon Cooperman advises Americans to buy everything. Nothing's overvalued in this rate environment. This shows the disconnect between the weathermen. We've got one person saying buy everything. It's not overvalued if rates remain low and you continue to see growth and opportunity in the market. On the other hand, I just listened to Harry Dent's rant today, came out three days ago. He expected this crash to happen last, was supposed to happen last summer in technology. And he, he actually stressed how good and how accurate his models are on the well, show today. He, yeah, so we have two polar that. opposites now. Um, but I kind of think it's cool when somebody's predicting the best. But here's what I'll tell people. It's never as good as it seems. It's never as bad as it seems. So while Leon Cooperman saying buy everything, know what we're telling people to do? Have, a, have a good plan and buy good quality investments. And figure out the right asset, asset allocation for you and be in the market all the time versus trying to decide when to get in and when to get out. Yeah, well, that's, you know, we try to make our show about unbiased advice and that's what we try to offer to people so that's probably the difference is we're not you know we just don't make these big claims um we just really i guess we i feel like we don't have a lot to gain if we were to do that anyway so i just thought it was neat i read that article i thought let's just throw it out there that we have someone actually making a prediction that nothing's overvalued in this interest rate environment yeah so is there okay is there anything to that i mean if because I think I get what he's saying with rates this low. And I know people have been talking valuations are at all time high of all these companies. So is he kind of commenting on when rates are this low, all these companies, they can just afford to just spend whatever they want and continue to grow. So it's, it, they're not overvalued. Yeah. So Cooperman said here uh, that would cause him to reduce his equity exposure. He said it would be Fed speak, it would be inflation, it would be the overall performance of the economy, it would be gold and Bitcoin, which I think is think represents speculative fever. It would be the stock market itself. In bull markets, four to seven pull, percent pullbacks are the rule of the day. So what you saw yesterday just happened a little more quickly. That was um that was that article came out like a week ago. But he's basically saying he's more concerned about the, what the Fed's going to do with interest rate policy. If pol if the interest rate policy is to increase interest rates, then maybe these companies are overvalued. But at today's current rate environment, he doesn't believe they're overvalued whatsoever. Which is really what the people predicting are saying that if we have inflation. That's going to cause 
feds to raise interest rates. But if that doesn't happen, then yeah, we're not so actually we overvalued. I mean, we yeah, use, I use we this analogy a lot. I've been telling people for 20 years, interest rates can't go any lower. They keep going lower. I've refinanced like nine mortgages in my life. The first one I took out, 5.75%. Well, this is the lowest rate we've ever seen. Yeah, so was the last one I did at 2.75. Yeah, nothing saying rates are going up. Right, and if we don't get the the runaway inflation that people are talking about, then really rates don't have to come up as much. So with that said, um, yeah, I enjoyed this show. Enjoyed catching up with you, Elias. Hopefully the world's treating you better than it was when you came in today. Hey, it doesn't feel like my dog's getting kicked as hard anymore, so I'm feeling pretty good. That's good. If anybody's looking for help uh, putting together a financial plan, if you have a listener question, we've been getting a lot of questions into the show, go to btwellshow.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.